Yes, Buck fans, this is the podcast that takes you back through all the best games, moments, and players in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is the BuckPower.com podcast. Now, here's the unofficial team historian and your host from BuckPower.com, it's Paul Stewart. Having looked back at games from 1979 and 1987 in the first two episodes of this podcast, we are coming more up to date with this one, albeit still having a real element of the orange bucko Bruce. Because we are going back to November 2009, the first official throwback game held at Raymond James Stadium and the day Leroy Selman became the first member of the Ring of Honour. It was Raheem Morris's first win as Buccaneer head coach. It was Josh Freeman's first NFL start. It was the first success of the season after an 0-7 beginning and it was the first time the Orange jerseys had been seen in the game since November 1996 when the Bucks played in Arizona. My name is Paul Stewart, the UK's most well-known Buccaneer fan, team historian and editor of BuckPower.com for the past 20 years. Every game, every player, everything Bucks. First touchdown pass in the NFL career of Josh Freeman. The Bucks had been on a decline since their victory in Super Bowl 37, and the roster was aging dramatically as coach John Gruden had been reluctant to build through the draft and instead had concentrated on veteran free agent signings. At quarterback, he'd gone from Brad Johnson to Sean King, Brian Greasy, Chris Sims, Bruce Gradkowski, Tim Rattay, Jeff Garcia and Luke McCown. Veteran defensive coordinator Monty Kiffin had resigned in December 2008 to join his son at the University of Tennessee and the Bucks had blown a 9-3 record with defeats in their final four games to miss out on the playoffs once more. In early January, Gruden was fired and his new young defensive coach, Raheem Morris, was promoted to become the eighth head coach in Buccaneer history. Joining us as our special guest for this episode is a very, very well-known Buccaneer beat writer. He is Roy Cummings, who for many years covered the Bucs for the Tampa Tribune and TBO.com. Roy, welcome to the podcast. Paul, thanks for having me on. Uh, I appreciate it and I mean this uh, sincerely. It is an honour to be on this podcast with you because Paul Stewart, folks, if you're if you're new to the podcast, you new to his website, even if you're old to his website, Paul deserves to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in the fan section for the Buccaneers because of all the Buccaneers fans, no one, and I mean no one, has been more loyal to this team than Paul. And actually no one's you have done more for for this team than Paul in terms of promoting it, archiving its history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the NFL uh, would probably end up leaning on him if they ever wanted to write a history of the Buccaneers because it's all on this website. Paul, it's great to talk to you again, my friend. Um, as you said, <laughs> leading up to this, 10 years since we were together last at Penny Hill Park uh, in London, and uh, I miss you, my friend. So, Raheem Morris taking over from John Gruden. What is your take on what happened? You know, it was, it was a very interesting time because John Gruden had pretty much played, played out his hand. Um, Bucks were ready to move on. They realized that the, the combination of Bruce Allen 
and John Gruden wasn't going to work long term if they were going to build uh, a sustainable football team, a team that could win consistently and, and get to the Super Bowl. They were going to have to spend it all, a lot of extra money in free agency on older players that would wash out a year or two later. And the, and the Glazers didn't want to do that. And, um, and they learned that idea from Rich McKay, who when Rich McKay was general manager of the team and the Glazers took over, Rich McKay explained to them, he said, there's two ways to build foot championship teams in this league. You can do it through the draft and, and a little bit in free agency where you kind of make up for your mistakes of the guys who didn't hit in, in the draft, or you can just buy free agents all the time. Uh, one is more expensive. Uh, obviously, the free agent route is more expensive, and it's, and it's a short-lived uh, dream. Um, the other way, usually you build a team, if you hit on the right draft picks, uh, if you hit on the right players, uh, you'll have a team that's going to be sustainable and competitive for seven, eight, maybe even ten years. The Glazers chose to go that route, and then when it didn't quite work out with uh, Tony Dungy, they decided that uh, let's try it the other way. They went with John Gruden. It worked, but then after a couple of years, they realized right away that this is getting costly. We're not getting better. We have a coach here in John Gruden who doesn't want to develop a young quarterback. He had Chris Sims, wasn't interested. Not that Chris was going to be the answer. But he didn't even give it a try, and the Buccaneers were very eager at the time to get that young quarterback and get into that era of developing a young quarterback and letting the young quarterback uh, lead you down the path. And they knew in order to do that, they would have to make a change. Um, and uh, it was interesting when they knew Monty Kiffin was leaving uh, as the defensive coordinator. And Raheem Morris was, uh, was the obvious choice, a very studious young coach at the time, um, much like Mike Tomlin at the time. He was very much like Mike Tomlin, way ahead of his time, and, uh, but ready to, to take on the challenge. And when, uh, when they decided to let John Gruden go, and already uh, uh, Monty Kiffin was gone, heading to Tennessee with his son, he, they decided, you know what? Why don't we just blow this whole thing up and start over again? Let's get rid of everybody. Get rid of Gruden, Allen. Let's promote the young talent that we have in our management level and coaching level. And that's how Mark Dominic became general manager. Raheem Morris was the choice as coach because they were afraid they were going to lose him. At the time, you go back, and he was getting interviews from other teams. A couple of them were just cursory interviews, but Denver was serious. And uh, the Bucks knew that in order not to lose Raheem Morris, who was one of the bright young coaches and bright young minds in the game at the time, uh, they had to promote him, and they did. And it's probably a little bit too soon, um, but they had an idea in mind uh, with, with Raheem, and that's how he became the coach. I always found Raheem to be one of the nicest people I've ever dealt with in the NFL. How did you find him working with him? Exactly the same way. Paul, Raheem Morris would uh he was like your neighbor he wasn't like a lot of head coaches who distance himself from anybody his real strength as a coach was that he was your best buddy and he was the guy who's going to bail you out in trouble um you know if you had a little bit too much to drink the night before he was the, the one who's going to drive you home because he was going to be your designated driver um if you needed someone to mow your lawn for you the next day because you weren't feeling right or couldn't get to it he'd do it for you uh, as a football coach, he was 
he was a, he, he was a guy who really had a great personality and way with players. Um, they adored him. They adored him because he, he connected with young players because he was a young guy himself. Um, and, and he came from a, you know, he kind of built himself up, uh, came from a, a small area in New Jersey, um, not a great football power, uh, figured things out on his own, studied hard, um, but he had a personality that was so engaging, um, he just automatically became everybody's best buddy. Um, it was one of his strengths, and unfortunately, after a couple of years, um, became one of his weaknesses because some players took advantage of it. The 2009 Buccaneers opened the season with a home loss to the Cowboys and Byron Leftwich starting at quarterback. After further defeat to the Bills and the Giants, Leftwich was replaced by second-year Josh Johnson, who had some nice moments but came no closer to winning a game than the current Bucks offensive coordinator. In Week 7, the Bucks went international. They travelled across the Atlantic to take on the New England Patriots at Wembley Stadium, a game that yours truly seemed to become the main story rather than the team as I was covered for a documentary by NFL Films. The game at Wembley was not close. An early pick six put the Patriots ahead for good and Tom Brady, I think we've heard of him, his 300-yard game led the Patriots to a one-sided 35-7 victory. But midway during the fourth quarter, the call came from the front office to the sideline and Josh Freeman entered the game for his first regular season NFL action. Calling it for Buccaneer Radio was not Gene Deckerhoff. He'd been temporarily replaced on play-by-play duties by some British guy. Freeman in the shotgun, waits for the snap from Jeff Fain, low snap, looks, fires right side, it's complete, his first NFL completion. Brian Clark. Brian Clark on the catch. The Bucks returned from England and the announcement was quickly made. Josh Freeman would start at quarterback for the visit of the Green Bay Packers after the bye week. So the Bucks went to London, gave Josh Freeman his first playing time. Do you think it was a good decision to start him after the bye week in this game against the Packers? Yeah, absolutely it was. Um, that whole season, again, go back to the beginning of, uh, of what was supposed to happen that year. Uh, the Bucks had drafted a young quarterback in Josh Freeman which is exactly what the Glazers wanted them to do. This was going to be the future. Um, but they were trying to do it right. They wanted to have Josh Johnson. Um, they wanted to make sure, that after Byron Leftwich, um, they wanted to make sure that Josh Freeman was kind of eased into the role. You know, look, Paul, you know this. The NFL has seen a number of good young quarterbacks wasted over the, pre- over the last decade because they put these guys in right away. It's way too soon. They're playing for bad teams. They're not surrounded by good players um, all the time. Some of them have bad defenses. Uh, some of them have bad offenses. Uh, it's so much is on their shoulders, and when the team fails, as they naturally would under any quarterback, um, it all falls on the quarterback, and after two or three or four or five years, uh, they're changing quarterbacks again the best way to make it work is take the Aaron Rodgers route. The Bucks tried that. That's what they wanted to do. I think ideally, I think they would have loved to have spent a year or most of that season watching, letting Josh Freeman watch from the sidelines. Uh, it didn't happen because they go to London, they're 0-6, they go to London, they get spanked by, by New England, which no one should be surprised at, but they're not even competitive. Um, Josh Johnson is clearly struggling. The magic that he had is in the brief moment that he did have some magic with the Bucks uh, disappeared rather quickly. Wanderlust and um, 
So Josh uh, Raheem Morris makes the call uh, that everyone had ma- was waiting for. Uh, makes the call, not a long distance call in London back to Tampa. It was, it was right, right up to the press box to um, to Mark Dominic, and it wasn't even really a conversation. He said, "I'm I'm going to put the kid in," and Mark Dominic said, "Absolutely, let's do it." And once they did that in uh, London against uh, you know for for a little bit the last couple of series there against New England, it was just natural. It was time. Well, I'll always remember that because I was uh, calling it. I'd taken over from Gene Deckoff on the commentary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it was one of those seminal moments in Buccaneers history. It was their attempt to uh, really, you know, outside of Doug Williams uh, and Benny Testaverde, I mean, it was kind of along that path. It's it's one of those guys that uh, where they thought, this is going to be the guy who's going to take us back to the promised land. This is the guy who's going to make us a playoff contender again. And again, unfortunately, he just wasn't surrounded by very good players, um, and uh, and it cost him. So let's go back to November the 8th, 2009. Number one in the Billboard charts was Fireflies by Owl City, and the number one album was the soundtrack to the Twilight Zone New Moon, a film just about to be released. Over here in the UK, the number one single was Run This Town by Jay-Z featuring Rihanna and Kanye West. The top film this week was 2012 starring John Cusack, one of the most appalling disaster movies ever made. The 43rd Country Music Awards were just about to take place, and amongst honours for missing dogs, boyfriends and erstwhile gamblers, the main winners were Taylor Swift and Ryan Paisley. In sport, the New York Yankees had just won their World Series, defeating the defending champion Philadelphia Phillies in six games. This game was truly symbolic for the fans with the return of the orange creamsicle uniforms in the original helmet logo. 22 years after the arrival of the pewter colours, the clamour from the fans to have a throwback game was heard along with the creation of a ring of honour for its stadium and its inaugural inductee Leroy Selman. Leroy had travelled to London with the Bucks and there was a private dinner for members of the 1979 team at One Buck Place the night before this game, something I was privileged to have been invited to. Fans arriving at Raymond James Stadium were delighted to see no expense had been spared in making this a true Orange Sunday. Banners, t-shirt giveaways, cheerleader outfits, everything was old school bucks. Over 30 members of that 1979 team were on the field pre-game and then at half-time for Selman's induction and the revealing of the first plaque on the stadium showing his retired number 63. Scott Bradford has been a season ticket holder with the Buccaneers since 1991. What was the atmosphere like in the stands for this game, Scott? Oh, the, the atmosphere was awesome. The memories just brings back with all the experience that come the stands and everything. I said, it just brings back so many childhood memories. I said, this is just awesome. And and the atmosphere, the atmosphere inside the stadium that day was like a college atmosphere. And it was just a great festive crowd. And then not to mention, you know, not to mention that was our first win that year. So that made it even more special. And what made it really special to me is to see Leroy Selman be inducted, be the first person to be inducted into the Ring of Honor. And uh, he was up there for a whole season by himself, and that's the way it should have been, because he was one of the greatest Buccaneers ever. On a windy, mild day in Tampa, it's a good football day. It's throwback day. They're bringing out the principal uniforms for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers against their old NFC Central Division rival, the Green Bay Packers. Welcome to the NFL on Fox. I'm Sam Rosen along with Tim Ryan and Chris Myers. 
And for the 0-7 Tampa Bay Buccaneers, it's time to look to the future. They are starting their first round draft pick at quarterback Josh Freeman. There were 63,000 people at Raymond James Stadium for this game, enjoying 82 degree weather. The Buccaneers starters on the offensive line, Donald Penn, Jeremy Zutar, Jeff Fain, Davin Joseph and Jeremy Trueblood. Michael Clayton and Maurice Stovall started wide receiver, with Kellen Winslow Jr. at tight end, Cadillac Williams and Ernest Graham in the backfield behind Josh Freeman. Antonio Bryant was a key inactive for this game. On defence, the Buccaneers were playing a 4-2-5, Jimmy Wilkerson, Ryan Sims, Chris Hovan and Styles G. White up front, Barrett Rood and Gino Hayes are linebackers, Akeem Tlaib and Rondé Barber at corner, Sabi Piscatelli and Tanar Jackson at safeties, with Albert Mack taking the nickel corner role. The third linebacker who saw a lot of action was Quincy Black. The Buccaneers' opening drive was a three and out, and it took the Packers only two plays to score, Aaron Rodgers hitting James Jones down the right sideline, beating Albert Mack one-on-one. But on the next drive, it was the return of the Mack. Two plays later, it was second and goal at the six. Freeman hit running back Derek Ward coming out of the backfield on the right side and he dived into the end zone in front of the pirate ship. Connor Bath was making his Buccaneer debut kicking and he converted the PAT to tie the scores at 7 with 6.15 gone. The Packers then capped an 11-play 69-yard drive on a 2-yard scoring run by Ryan Grant. Freeman drove the Bucks into field goal range but Connor Bath missed a field goal wide right. The Tampa defence forced a 3-and-out and the Packers lined up to punt. Rondé had already scored on a punt return, fumble return and interception return and now he had a block punt as well. He would finish with 14 touchdowns in his Buccaneer career, easily the defensive leader in team history and of course he had one against the Eagles in the playoffs. To put this 14 number into perspective, Derek Brooks ranked second with seven and then Mike Washington and David Logan are tied for third with just four. Another Packer drive resulted in a touchdown as Rodgers hit Donald Driver from 32 yards out, putting Green Bay ahead again 21-14. But Josh Freeman led a composed two-minute drive just before half-time, going 74 yards on 12 plays that saw Bath make his first Buccaneer field goal. It was 21-17 at the half as Leroy Selman's induction as Teremis began. Early in the second half, the Buccaneer defence came to the party. On the next drive, it was turnover time. Rogers wants to go deep. Here it is. A lot of coverage, and it's intercepted. A keep to leave has it. Gets that 
Tlaib was one of the real big playmakers on defense. How did you view him as a player and a person? He's a very good player, a uh, very smart player. Um, really knew how to take advantage of his skill set. Um, probably never got enough credit for being as smart a player as he was. Um, knew exactly how to take advantage of his skill set, which was a, a tremendous uh, skill and ability to break on the ball quickly, um, to, to make uh, make plays out there. You know, he could cover anybody one-on-one. Um, probably still could. He just had that kind of skill. As a person, it was funny. Um, Akeem Tlaib was once described to me, and, and, and I'm not trying to be derisive here, but he was once described to me by a, a teammate as a wannabe thug. He won, He came from a, a, a good background, um, middle-upper-class background in the Dallas area, and but he wanted to be a ghetto kid. He wanted to live the ghetto life. Um, and his idea of doing that was basically to just, you know, go against the grain and everything he did. And he did to the point of virtually destroying his career all by himself. Here is one of the most talented players in the game. And he probably would have been just as happy in jail and, and just as happy committing a crime, I would say, almost, virtually, as he was making a play on a football on a Sunday afternoon. It was incredible. You could, nobody could get through to him to just settle down. And um, unfortunately with Akeem, and, and when I said earlier that there were some players who took advantage of Raheem Morris's, um, his, Raheem Morris treated every player on his team as if they were a pro. And... He treated them, unfortunately, he treated them all as if they were eight to ten year veterans. Can't always do that with first and second year players like Akib Talib. In other words, when he said there was an 11 o'clock curfew, he expected everybody in at 11 o'clock. 11 10, 11 15 at the worst. If he came in at 11 20, he'd probably give you an earful, but, uh, but he'd let it go. Akib Talib was one of the players who took advantage of that. And he knew it. He knew he could. Um, he knew that he was going to start. He was the best sec- uh, player in the secondary, secondary on that team, uh, outside of Ronald Barber, obviously. Um, and he knew that uh, he came in at 11.30, midnight, 1 o'clock. Didn't matter. He was going to play the next day anyway. And that's what happened in London. Akib Tlaib came in late, and, um, and Raheem Morris said, that's enough. I've had it. And uh, it, it got worse from there. And Raheem lost a couple of players as a result of the way he treated Akib Tlaib in that situation, which, which was the right way. But um, Akib tried to take advantage, and uh, which no one was surprised at. And it's unfortunate. And um, really, from that point on, uh, in the secondary, things got really ugly, as we well know. And um, it was uh, it was a tough it was a tough run. But Akib Tlaib was a player who, if if he had if he had played at, if he had acted like the pro that he was, um, he would have had a much better career. But uh, boy, the boy, the guy just always ran against the grain. The Buccaneer offense was not able to move the ball, and early in the fourth quarter, Rogers scrambled 12 yards for a touchdown. 
The Bucks now trailed by 11, and an eight straight loss looked on the cards. Mason Crosby kicks it off. Clifton Smith from the goal line. Finds a lane. Quick return for Smith. Missed by the kicker. Cuts in and stays on his feet. And finally, they catch up and take him down. Great return by Clifton Smith. To the Packers 17-yard line, 83-yard return. Bucks, of course, had their first kick return touchdown in 2007 with Michael Spurlock, and Clifton Smith had one against Detroit the following year. Sammy Strauter performed the feat earlier in the 09 season, and then Spurlock did it again in 2010 before this latest kick return touchdown drought began. So Clifton Smith made the Pro Bowl as a rookie in 08, but it was a career that was sadly cut short by injury. Yeah, uh, a very talented player and uh, had everything you were looking for. And, uh, you know, like I said, that, that's one of the guys where they did their homework and he had it all going for him. And unfortunately, um, you know, we've seen that happen with a lot of players. Um, some never get the chance. Clifton finally did. And, um, or he did early on and it just, um, and he got hurt. And uh, again, that's why, you know, it's so rare. The Tom Brady thing is just such a, a marvel because uh, not that they played the same position, but at the end of the day, uh, Clifton Smith was a guy who just, uh, you know, he rolled, the, the, the dice rolled wrong for him. He had all the skill and ability and uh, was a player that this team, I think, was a part of the, he was part of the core. He was the team that he was part of the, the group they wanted to build around. It uh, unfortunately didn't work out for him or the Bucks. Clifton's now a friend of BuckPower.com, and he actually now works at the NFL Players Association in Tampa. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, again, things work out in a funny way for a lot of guys. I mean, he found his niche, and he's doing great work there uh, here in Tampa uh, for that group for sure. This is the BuckPower.com Podcast Network. Three plays later, Freeman fell Kellen Winslow from seven yards out. two-point conversion failed and the Bucks were down 28-23. Styles G. White batted down a third down pass forcing a Packer punt and the Bucks took over at their own 28-yard line. Completions to Winslow and Michael Clayton took them downfield but they faced fourth down at the Green Bay 7 inside the final five minutes. Raheem, he went for it. was now going completely crazy, including one Brit on the pirate ship. The two-point conversion to Michael Clayton succeeded and the Bucks led 31-28 with 4-14 remaining. The defence forced a punt and the Bucks ran the clock down to 1.35 before the Packers took over their own 13-yard line. Styles White again then decided to get in on the action. Fourth down, Rogers threw it up in desperation, where it was picked off by Tenard Jackson. He returned it 35 yards for a score, in spite of the other defenders telling him to go to the ground. But since when did Tenard ever follow the rules? Fourth and 12. Rogers, 
Bath PAT was good. Tampa Bay 38, Green Bay 28. It was time for the Gatorade bath for Raheem as Aaron Rodgers completed a few last meaningless passes, but the final gun sounded and the 2009 Buccaneers had their first win of the season. The Bucks were outgained by over 120 yards and over 11 minutes in time of possession, but all that mattered was the scoreline and a rookie QB winning in his first start. You saw how poised he was, how he never got rattled, said Raheem Morris after the game. He made some mistakes, but all quarterbacks do. But when he goes out there, you feel like you've got a chance to win with him. We put the total package together today, said wide receiver Michael Clayton, who was the recipient of Freeman's pass on a two-point conversion. That's something we've been waiting all year to dial up, and we got it. Obviously, it's not just about me, it's about us, said Raheem. It's about everybody who's part of this. It's the organisation from the top to the bottom. Everybody's included. Everybody has worked hard for this. Joe Henderson's column in the Tampa Tribune summed it up. If you wanted poise, you saw it. If you wanted hope, you have it. If you wondered whether young Josh Freeman has the stuff to lead the Buccaneers, your question has been answered in the affirmative. Fans have waited for a quarterback to make plays, to move the ball and to give the Bucks a chance to win a ball game. At times, it seemed like too much to ask. Not anymore. For at least one week, party like it's 1979. So Scott, did you think Josh Freeman was going to be that franchise quarterback the Bucks always seem to be looking for? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you, you know, after the Packers game, when he, he looked really sharp and then it got better and better and better... Yeah, everybody thought that, and then and then towards the end of the year, he got that win in New Orleans, and he looked he looked sharp too then too, and then the following year, you know when they when they when they did really well, and he was he was on fire. We thought, I was thinking, yep, yeah, we got our franchise guy. You now host the biggest tailgate party each home game. Tell our listeners more about that. Oh yes, it's called What the Buck. We host a really big tailgate, like you said. And then it's myself, Cheryl Stewart, a bunch of other of us. We we all we all host it, put all the work into it. It starts four hours before kickoff. People know about it, and, and you can park there if you get there early enough. We have all you can eat food, all you can eat drinks, music, and it's just a good time. It's a bunch of Buccaneer fans mingling, and it's a place to come before the game. And let's let's face it, during those Lovey Smith years and uh, some of those Shaquille Shawn years. The tailgate was actually better than the game. So you've had some quite special guests turn up. You've had Brian Ford there from the Buccaneers recently, haven't you? Yes, we've had Brian Ford there. We've ever we've had Ernest Graham there. We, we've had Styles G. White there several times. He's a he's he's like a Bob Buecher of football. <laughs> One of the people who was going to be involved in this podcast was the late Mark Cook. Scott, you knew him as much as a friend as a writer. Yes, he was an, a great writer, as everybody knows. I also knew the person, too. He was a, a true definition of a Floridian, loved this state, loved fishing, and he was a true, genuine guy to everybody that knew him. Just a special person, and it's very sad that uh, he passed away too early. I mean, he's the same age as me. The Bucks would go on to lose narrowly in Miami the following Sunday. They would then suffer four more pretty one-sided defeats before they surprised Seattle 24-7 at Quest Field and then a really stunning victory over the 13-1 and Super Bowl-bound Saints in the Superdome. This put an end to that meaningless statistic about a team never having won the Vince Lombardi Trophy if they'd lost to the Buccaneers. 
The 2009 Bucks finished at 3-13, the third worst record in the NFL ahead of only the Rams and the Lions. Okay, I'm joined now by another member of the BuckPower.com podcast network. He's the host of the No Quarter Given podcast, Jason Powers. Jason, how do you now feel about the orange creamsicle jerseys and the Bucko Bruce helmet logo being used? Hey, Paul, nice to join you. I appreciate you having me on. I am definitely a kid that grew up in Tampa, so I grew up with the orange orange jerseys and the creamsicle jerseys. I would love to see them get, get used at least once a year or once every two years at a home game because I think it's the fabric of the franchise's history. You know, that was the original colors for so many years. You know, I love I love the new colors now with the pewter, but I but if you're an old school Bucks fan from the 70s and 80s, you love the old orange. You'd love to see it every once in a while. A decade on, how do you now regard Raheem Morris as Buccaneer head coach? You know, with Raheem, it was at, at the time, if you remember, Bucks fans remember he was in hot demand. Everybody thought that he was going to get hired to be a coach with the Broncos and a couple of other teams were interested in Raheem. So I think in retrospect, I mean, he was a young guy at the time. He was, what, 32, 33 years old. He probably wasn't ready for the job as being a head coach. Nobody 32 or 33 is probably ready to be a head coach in this league. And I think the Bucks kind of panicked and made a move to make him the head coach because they were fearful he was going to go somewhere else. He did a good job as defensive coordinator for the one year, but I would have liked to have seen Raheem get a little more seasoned as a coordinator, like everybody does in the league before they get a job, before they get a head coaching job. And, you know, I think you've seen now that Raheem's kind of matured a little bit as, as a coach. He's, you know, he's worked in Atlanta several years. Now he's with Los Angeles. And I wouldn't be surprised if another year or two of good work in, as a defensive coordinator, he gets another opportunity to be a head coach. Yeah, it did go downhill pretty fast for him in 2011, didn't it? His downfall was it seemed like he got to be too friendly with the players. You have to have a line of demarcation between I'm the head coach and you're the player. We can have a good relationship, but I can't be one of the guys. You have to take it more of a professional level of I'm the coach, you're the player. We're going to do what I say. So the 2009 season in retrospect, getting rid of all the veterans, starting the rebuild, was 3-13 and 13 worth it? It was. Um, I think it was uh, because, again, in, look, I, I agree with the theory that you build through the draft that you it's a, it's a young man's game, uh, you know, just, despite what Tom Brady's doing. It, it is a young man's game. And at some point, if you're, you know, look, when you have unlimited resources like the, the Blazers seem to have, uh, you can go about the, the route. And they've done it again. You know, they've done it again. They went out and basically bought their, their Super Bowl champion from 2021 here. Um, they, they bought this championship. They, they, they brought in Tom Brady. Um, not that he was going to cost any less than any other quarterback, uh, but, you know, which he did. But, you know, let him, in essence, have his guys. He brings in Antonio Brown, brings in Gronk. Uh, they built it through free agency again. Um, it doesn't mean that they're, that they're not uh, committed to building long term, but that's the harder way to do it. But it's also the more sustainable way. And I think in time with the right coach and the right players and certainly the right quarterback, it, it will work. Um, it will work. We've seen it happen repeatedly in other cities. Pittsburgh is a perfect example. Uh, you're seeing it happen in Kansas City, Seattle. Um, it's happened, and it will happen again. Um, as long as you've got the right guys, and 
you know, at the end of the day, and I, this is not really a shot at, at him necessarily, but because, again, not everybody works out. Josh Freeman was the right call from a, from a playing standpoint. Josh Freeman wasn't quite mature enough, and he had some other issues he was dealing with off the field um, that prohibited him from becoming the player the Bucks expected him to be. And um, it really wasn't a matter of, of talent. The talent was there. And, uh, and the talent was there for a lot of the young players that they brought in that season. Um, and again, it just it didn't work out. So 3-13 and 13 worth it? Yes, it's worth it because they took the shot they needed to take in terms of bringing in, in the young quarterback. My belief is that if they didn't bring in Josh Freeman, they never would have brought in Jameis Winston. And again, that's another quarterback who he did his part. Jameis Winston did what he needed to do. Uh, it was far too often that Jameis Winston didn't have a ground game behind him to help, uh, a defense to help, and, of course, a special teams unit to help. So uh, this team would have been a lot better had uh, Jameis Winston been, been surrounded by some of that. So you can find all of Roy's Buccaneer game report articles on buckpower.com. But, Roy, what are you doing these days? Well, I, uh, I still follow the Buccaneers, but I can't say that I cover them the way I did. It's not a 24-7 uh, deal the way it used to be for me um, after uh, the Tampa Tribune was uh, bought, sold, and put out of its misery. Um, it was uh, I moved on to a, a couple of different national websites for a couple of years, and then when they went belly up, um, I, I had to go get real, real work. And I am now the, uh, the editorial supervisor, which in essence is the managing editor of a uh, newspaper called the Florida Healthcare News. I write about medical successes. Um, someone who's had, uh, you know, a, a sore back, or um, you know, maybe uh, maybe they have a, a cataract surgery or something like that. And so I'm writing about people. And believe it or not, I've written about Tony Dungy and Derek Brooks in this uh, in this venture. Um, I've written about the Rays, uh, uh, one of their trainers. Uh, I, I meet all kinds of very interesting people through this job, and it's it's fun and exciting. But I still follow the Buccaneers. Uh, I still do regular uh, radio segments, podcasts like this one. Uh, I'm probably on something at least three, four times a week, uh, and uh, including uh, local TV here in Tampa. So <clears throat> I'm still uh, very active with the Buccaneers, uh, still follow them, and um, uh, it's still a lot of fun. Roy, thank you so much for your time. Everyone appreciates the writing you've done in the past, and we look forward to seeing you do some more in the future. Paul, thanks for keeping the flame going. Uh, appreciate it, and uh, thanks for all you do. You belong in that Pro Football Hall of Fame, my man. I've received a bunch of questions following our first two podcasts, so let's have a quick delve into the buckpower.com mailbag. James from Largo said he loved being taken back to the 1979 season and the first Buck playoff team. He wants to know, will we be featuring the monsoon game from the end of that year and then the playoff win over the Eagles? James, yes and yes. Although the Kansas City victory is one of those holy grail games that I do not have on video. Gary from Norfolk wanted to know if I really do think the Falcons' former English kicker Mick Luckhurst is a good guy. Gary, yes I do. And the mock rivalry we had in the late 80s and early 90s over here was actually a PR stunt involving the two of us and the head of cheerleader productions, Charles Belchin. Charles went on to become my director on the work for Sky Sports. Mick Luckhurst really is a great person and one of the leading lights in the history of the NFL in the UK. 
Dwayne from Tampa messaged me. He wants to know when we're going to have Tom Brady on this podcast talking about the Super Bowl victory. Dwayne, I've got two other quarterbacks in War 12 who are going to be on here before the GOAT. My thanks to the guests on this episode, Roy Cummings, Jason Powers and Scott Bradford. You can hear Jason every week, along with Peter Blake, on the No Quarter Given show, which is also part of the BuckPower.com podcast network. My thanks also to Al Needham and TJ Reeves. Please rate and review this and other episodes wherever you get your podcasts from and subscribe to our free shows. We have another show planned for the network next month and the fourth episode of this series will go back to the first season of The Pewter Pirates when we travel back to September 1997 and Tony Dungy's first playoff team.